Well, I'm going to read the scripture. Um, this morning we are looking at the book of Mark again, and we will be reading Mark 10:13 through 15, and then Mark 9:42 through 50. So this is Mark 10. And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them. And the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. This is from Mark 9. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. So the team that gets to read the scriptures uh, had been remarking on the differences between the fall when they would read one or two chapters of the Revelation and the spring when they would just read one or two or three or four verses from the New Testament and how much easier it was. So both because it was the way we structured the service and because Jesus also says harsh things, perhaps even harsher things than in Revelation, I was glad that a reader got to read something challenging, not just a few verses here and there. Sometimes pastors change uh, what they're preaching on, depending on local circumstances. Uh, some pastors do that a lot. Some do it just, or never. Um, I am closer to never than to a lot, and I did not change much about my sermon today um, because I believe, first of all, that most texts still apply to any challenging things in front of us, and also because the words of the Lord were true yesterday and last year and 500 years ago, and they're very applicable to us today. What we're doing is we're, we, we spent four weeks looking at um, two crises— within all humans, according to Jesus, as he begins to explain the kingdom of God and the gospel of God to his people in the book of Mark. And now we're looking at attributes of a follower. And Mark is my favorite gospel. It's been that way for over 20 years, and yet this lens has been like a secret decoder ring for me of the things I didn't realize, I didn't understand in the book. If you simply think, perhaps I naturally think I'm alienated from God, and naturally think that I'm autonomous, good to go all on my own without any help, and take those two things as a lens and read the book of Mark. 16 chapters, by far the shortest gospel. You might have some extra time on your hands. Go ahead and read it. Those two lenses will absolutely open the book up for you. And then we go into uh, attributes of a follower of Jesus, and we looked at surrender a couple of weeks ago, and um, surrender is a, is a lovely move of a follower of Jesus because, first of all, it thwarts both crises. Oh, surrender. 
I'm not alienated to God because of the work of Christ and surrender to the fact that I can't save myself, then he leads me into the flourishing with God life. And then we looked last week at prayer and I want to remind us of a couple of things about prayer. This is a sketch that one of our artists did for us. There's so many things that Christians do and, and, and frankly other religions too for similar reasons that are worth paying attention to. So followers of Christ are surrendered to God in mind and will and heart in deed. They also pray. Why do they pray? Why do we kneel sometimes when we pray? Because there is one good king. People kneel to kings, and in movies and TV, it's a little challenging because we know something, especially as as writers continue to highlight this, we know something about the imperfections or perhaps even the evil of that queen or king, and yet there is one good king, and we are, we give our allegiance to him. We fold our hands. I've been doing this with the kids, and sometimes I don't fold my hands when I pray. Sometimes I fold them like this. Um, Why do we do this? it's a physical reminder, a genuflection, if you will, that, that we're humble in our praise and petition and confession to the Lord. Uh, we close our eyes, which is a very simple move and trusting. If you're standing in front of someone and you close their eyes and you don't get nervous, it means that you trust them. You don't have to close your eyes when you pray, pray but perhaps we could and we bow our heads. This morning it's at story time with the kids, which is at 9.30, by the way. We're, we're working out all the kinks. I believe I said 9.30, and the advertisement behind me said 10. Sorry. If you know me, you're not at all surprised by this. I promise it's 9.30. I promise. And we rolled our heads around before we bowed them. But why do we bow our head? That's meek. And meek doesn't mean weak. It means we know we need God, and we have him. Perhaps this week entertain some different movements of your body to help your mind and your soul and your spirit remember the promises of God in prayer. And what Meg read from Mark chapter 10 is a a strong reminder. Like, we kind of love this scripture like Jesus loved kids. Well, he did, and he pointed out that uh, our reception of his grace of the gospel is by faith and it needs to be like a gift. Do you remember the point in time as a kid when you stopped receiving things like a gift, you felt entitled to them or you felt like you deserved them or you knew you didn't deserve them so you were kind of ashamed but still happy because it was the right gift, they got your list. Jesus is, is utilizing this moment and the disciples problems and his own indignation and I totally was listening to the scripture being read and I'm like I want to look up the Greek word for indignation I wonder if it's the same one and I have no idea you can look it up if you want if it's the one where Jesus is deeply moved in spirit before he raises Lazarus from the dead which happens twice and is a really strong word so I'm going to look up indignation later anyway Jesus followers are surrendered to him they pray to him and they learn to guard their heart and what we're doing in guarding our heart is we're attempting to return to this moment where we receive his free gift. Not out of shame and thankfulness, not because we think we deserve it, not because we think we have earned it, but as a child. Not childish, childlike. Receiving his grace that comes because he loves us 
through no work of our own. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. So the third attribute for Jesus' followers is that they guard their heart. And that's what Jesus is describing in this quite challenging section from Mark chapter 9, verses 42 through 50. Let's read it again. That's what we should always do with challenging verses, right? Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. I was reading a very long commentary about this passage. I like to buy the best commentaries. You deserve the best scholarship, and they look really nice on my shelf. And um, it said that this statement is entirely unique to Jesus. And uh, a lot of his statements are unique, but a lot of them he's borrowing from another teacher in part, and then he adds uh, his own ending. A lot of times he'll be referencing the Old Testament. He was uh, trained in Jewish school, knew his Old Testament exceptionally well, and was also familiar with how the Pharisees and the scribes and the Sadducees viewed things. And this is Jesus giving really strong language about the gospel. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched, for everyone will be salted with fire. Jesus is waving his arms rhetorically. He is utilizing metaphor after metaphor. And listen, the fact that it's a metaphor should make us pay more attention, not less. He's using metaphors to help us understand the dangers of sin, the dangers of not guarding our heart. And by the way, the heart in the New Testament is not emotion. Emotions included, it's emotions and mind and will. All of those things are the heart for Jesus. Christianity is a way that includes emotions and the heart, but it is not mushy. So how do we guard our heart? We guide, uh, how do we guard our, the part of our faith that overlaps with our mind if the heart is mind and emotions and will? I think we're deliberate with our time. I think we're deliberate with our conversation with others and with ourselves. If you read the Psalms, you'll notice lots of phrases speak to my soul. I heard Tim Keller, a pastor in New York City, say once you, you have two options. You can listen to your soul or speak to your soul. And I love that. Perhaps it is that binary. That we need to learn the spiritual skill of speaking to our soul and that is how we guard the part of our heart, our, uh, heart that is connected to our mind. It also involves being intentional with other people. Do you mention the questions that you have to your friends? The questions that you have about life, about neighboring, about your parents or your siblings or your spouse or your kids or your coworkers or your financial fears or whatever? You can't, now don't barrage them with that. You know, don't set up a FaceTime today and, and I think I've got 15 big doubts but if you don't share 
any of that, you're missing an opportunity because in addition to being creatures of the mind, emotion, and will, we are also creatures of relationship. And that will be, uh, there's a creative challenge to that today, and yet it's a creative challenge that all of us are up for. Guarding our heart, and specifically the part of it that is uh, our mind, involves deliberate time, conversations with others, and with self. It also involves letting our mind rest. One of my very, very, very favorite things about the scripture is the Sabbath, especially when it's treated appropriately in terms of how we talk about it. Uh, Jewish men and women light two candles 18 minutes before sundown on Friday. One is for the commandment in Exodus to keep. One is for the command in Deuteronomy to remember it's the same command but utilizing different language. One of the ways that we guard our faith and the part of our faith that's connected to our mind is we rest. One day in seven. Whatever your vocation is, and, and vocation is larger than uh, what we receive money for, whatever your vocation is, you are to rest from that one day in seven and therefore actively remember with your faith, which is connected to your mind, that the world will continue to spin because of God, not you. It's one way that we guard our heart with respect to our mind. What about emotions? For some of you, uh, you think that you're not as an emotional person as others, and I would say that your emotions live in you in a different place. One of our elders told me recently, and those of you that know our elders will probably be able to guess who this is, that he has compartments for his compartments. And the reason that he said that is because I do not. Some of you cannot read my face. Others of you can. Uh, Sometimes when I get a little frustrated in a service, my wife will ask me, how many people do you think really knew that you were mad? I was like, I don't know. Somewhere between 10 and 41% of the people. All of us have emotions, though. They're in there. And here's, and this is the eye. Jesus talks about the foot, which I'm, I'm connecting to the mind for my own purposes. He talks about the eye, all the ways that we interact with the world, the hand. I'm calling this the eye. The, um, your emotions are a bridge between your relationships and your mind, between your will and your mind, between your circumstances, your past, and your future. And a bridge can't take you anywhere by itself. You need the will and the heart and the mind for that. But also, bridges are not to be taken for granted. They're important. And so I think the way that we guard our heart with respect to our emotions is um, we attempt to be aware of them, which for some of us is easier than others. Though I'm an emotional person, I'm not often aware of my own emotions until either much later or until someone else points them out to me. But not to be ruled by them. This is Jesus waving his, his eyes or his arms and talking, waving his eyes at us, waving his arms at us and talking to us about the importance of being intentional with the ways we're in the world, with where our feet take us, with what our eyes see, which we have some control over, and with what our hands do. So you have a mind, that's part of your faith. You have emotions, that's part of your faith, and you have will. What you choose to do and not do. Uh, This is the part of guarding the heart that overlaps most with temptation. We're going to talk about temptation in a couple weeks. It's going to be super fun. Um, because there are lives of life that are available to us through avoiding temptation. It actually will be fun. This is the part that overlaps the most with that. And with our will, with our planning, 
with accountability, repentance, and conversation, we choose to move towards the life of life that Jesus described. Not only confessing to God, but perhaps telling friends about the temptations that we deal with. Perhaps putting into our calendar to talk to friends because it, it doesn't come naturally to many of us. One of my favorite things about confession of sin that we do on Sunday mornings is I hope it overlaps into your afternoon the way that it inevitably does for me. I'm a little bit more likely to confess, which is a move of both the mind and the will and probably the emotions towards the neighbors that we sin against. It's actually a way of guarding our hearts to move towards our loved ones when we know that we harmed them. And we say, not only I'm sorry, and not only please forgive me, but also I'm going to work on that. Jesus does talk here about hell. I'm not going to skip it. This is a metaphor. And listen, when Jesus speaks metaphorically, we are to pay even closer attention. He, and, and while speaking metaphorically, it's because being in the presence of God without the protection of Jesus is a horrific and terrifying and painful reality. Hell is real. Jesus' description of it is a metaphor because he chose to use metaphorical language because it would reach us quicker. In our attempts to control and especially to try and understand, which are noble in one sense, we long to understand, we want to know where hell is. When Jesus uses metaphorical language, we need to pay attention. It is the rhetorical equivalent of waving our arms. That it is dangerous to not attempt to give our feet and our eyes and our hands, which are a metaphor for our mind and our heart and our will, to Jesus and then follow him into the flourishing with God life. And I think we know this. I think we know that our feet have taken us to places we should not have been. With our hands, we have either harmed or perhaps missed an opportunity. Haven't we withheld touch from a loved one and known that it hurt them? Your eyes and your feet and your hands are for the flourishing of your neighbors and for your own flourishing. And the more intentional we are in giving those to Christ, in learning how he describes our use of them, in prayer and in, in humble conversation with our friends, the more we lean into and enjoy the kingdom, the with God life. Jesus' followers guard their hearts as they love God. I was thinking this week about describing loving God because when we use the word love in 2020 in America, I think most of our brains go first to either mushiness or a reaction against mushiness. So we're like, it's either mushy or it's like, no, love's a choice. And the scriptures don't speak that way. The scriptures speak expansively and interdependently about worship and love. And worship is every move of allegiance that we make. Meaning, 
literally everything that you do and that I do throughout the week is a move of allegiance to something. Now the reason that we don't think that is because some moves of allegiance to God, some moves of worship are intuitive to us. Taking our, our time of corporate worship as, a, as an example, there are parts of our corporate worship service that I know you really like. And I know there are parts that you don't like, both because you've told me and because I look at your faces and overthink when I look at your faces and because you've emailed me and because I've heard people criticize songs that are not exciting enough and songs that are too repetitive and songs that are not repetitive. And there are a lot of things to say about that. First of all, Paul said twice, psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Second of all, some psalms are repetitive. I just, I don't want to get into a worship war fight here. But as an example, our worship service, there are parts of it that we like and parts of it that we don't like. And to me, that proves what God says throughout his scripture, which is that worship is all that we do. But we don't think that it is because so many things are intuitive to us because of how we're wired, because of the culture that we're in. Some virtues even are easier for us. Loving God is both, or is is choice. It is activity. It does involve emotion. So perhaps it's a little bit mushy, but it's all of those things. So I want to ask, because in Jesus's rhetorical arm-waving, what he's saying is, plan, uh, he's waving his arms and saying sin is, is far more dangerous than you think. And the opportunity for you to flourish is right in front of you. It has to do with your eyes and your feet and your hands. How we apply that this week is plan. If you have already put into your calendar time and space and way to love God, good job. If you spend time in your prayer closet praying the way Jesus said, not praying the way Jesus said not to and praying the way that he said to, good. If you have put a worship playlist on Spotify I don't know if Pandora is helpful anymore. I don't want to get in trouble saying this, you know, to all of you. But on Pandora, on iTunes, perhaps on your vinyl collection, I have a vinyl collection, perhaps a CD or a tape, good job. And that might seem like a weird application. That might seem like a non-powerful application. But you have hours this week where you'll be at your home or driving. You have hours every week. And some of that time is to be spent actively loving God. We were reading in our, in our, men's, our larger men's group that meets the first Wednesday of the month. Uh, we're utilizing as a conversation partner a book by John Eldridge about Jesus' personality. And he talks about the importance of telling Jesus out loud that we love him. And man, do we have issues, Right? Just watch people in the room and myself and I'm thinking about this as an application for you people in a sermon and I'm like, I have to be able to do this if I'm going to say that they do it. And it was lovely to do and so hard to do. Why was it so hard to do it? I don't know. I don't know what it is all about being 42 and being Matt Blazer and perhaps being in New England and whatever else it is. But to stop and I was at my dining room table and to look up and say, and it was then, it was easy once I decided to do it. God, I love you. I do. I love you. I want to encourage you to plan to love God. And here's the thing that's so lovely about this as a command. And I know, right, surprising, right? Pastor says plan, you know, 
love God and, and plan to do so this week. Perhaps it's surprising that I'm encouraging you to literally put it into your calendar. Moves of worship are subversive to all the things about us that cause us pain and disorientation. Many of you are afraid right now. Many of you are angry, which might be pure, and it might be a reaction to the fear. I'm more like be busy, be busy, be busy for others, and then as I'm turning the lights off and going to bed, I literally had this thought this week. After the NBA shut down and what Tom Hanks and Rita Wilson, I was like, Tom Hanks, what? And I'm turning the lights off in my house, and literally these are the thoughts that go through my head. Why don't we have more non-perishables, and how come I don't own a gun? And listen, I don't want to own a gun. If, if I ever own one, I did in a former life, not former, you know what I mean, decades ago. If I ever own one again, I'll be surprised. So there, now you know how I feel about guns. If you have them, fine, license them and all that. Those are the thoughts that go through my head because my way of doing fear is be busy, help others, be busy, help others, and then go to bed. Oh, there they are. And moves of love towards God are subversively against that and then powerfully against it. You're going to experience emotion this week and I would encourage you to press into that with an active, out loud affection for God who is a good parent, Jesus who has rescued you, and the Holy Spirit who is ever present in your life, guiding, comforting, and assuring you. In Mark chapter 12, one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another and seeing that he answered them well, talking about Jesus, asked him, by the way, this is a good scribe. Sometimes we're hard on scribes and Pharisees and Sadducees. This is a pretty good scribe. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another and seeing that he answered them well, asked him, Jesus, which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, the most important is hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. This is called the Shema. It is as foundational part of following God and the with God life as exists, found in Deuteronomy. And you shall love, you see why I don't read the scriptures? See why I ask other people to do it? I always stop to talk. You're a professional, it's fine. The most important is hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, you are right, teacher, which I think is an awkward response. You have truly said that he is one and there is no other beside him and to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding, with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. Paul describes that Jesus appears in Mark chapter one and he says the kingdom is at hand because following him and trusting him is the kingdom. Paul later very helpfully describes the kingdom as in Romans 14, 17 as righteousness, joy, and peace. I know you long for joy and for peace and in your good moments for righteousness. 
How do we come by them? One of the ways is by actively loving God. There's a new app that the team at Ransom Tart, John Eldridge's ministry in Colorado Springs, created, and it's called the One Minute Pause. And it's ironic that we need an app to pause from our apps. Perhaps you don't need an app. I probably do, according to the screen time report I read this morning. We must learn to speak the promises of God which are joy and peace to our heart. It is a way of deliberate love for God and it is both a subversive and an explicit move against our false selves, the evil one, and the curse that we live in. And this is not only for our hearts, this is for our neighbors. When Jesus speaks about our feet and our eyes and our hands, he's pointing out we can't care for our neighbors if we're harming them, if we're lusting after them. At least two of the examples would have, a Jewish person would have heard a connection, not, a, not explicitly this, but connected to a sexual sin. If we're harming our neighbors actively or harming them internally or envying what they have, we're not caring for them well. You know the scriptural definition of envy? It's a little harsh, but helpful. And I know this is not what's in Merriam-Webster, but it is what's in the Bible. If you want to challenge me on it, I would enjoy the conversation, but the Bible defines it a little bit differently than our culture. Can you tell I've gotten emails about this in the past? And I love them. I actually love them. I love emails about scripture and about something I said. I don't love emails where you tell me what I said and I know I didn't say it. But they can go to good places. Anyway, the scriptural definition of, of jealousy is longing for another and, and God describes himself as jealous, not in and of itself wrong. The scriptural uh, definition for coveting is desiring the thing that the other person has. The scriptural definition for envy is wanting the thing the other person has and believing that they don't deserve it and you do. And when Jesus talks about our eyes tempting us to sin, he is leading us to understand that if we envy our neighbor, our ability to care for them is gone. What do we do with that envy? Well, Bob Newhart would say, stop it! Remember that old sketch? Bob Japping has showed that in a, a video once in church. I couldn't stop laughing. Jesus says, I love you. I paid the debt incurred through your envy or lust or harm. Now repent to me, confess, and then receive the flourishing life. And through learning to repent, we actually can look at our neighbors and not envy what they have. We actually can look at people without lusting after them. We actually can interact with our spouse and know when withholding touch would be harm. We can actually interact with our children without grabbing them too hard, which took me almost two years of consistent repentance to God and to neighbor. But if I could wave my magic wand, what I would, what, over people, and I don't have a magic wand, this is Jesus, but If there's one thing that I long to convince people of that has been most challenging in the almost 20 years that I've been doing ministry is this. There is freedom. 
Jesus wouldn't describe it if it weren't actually available to us. There is freedom from the sins of the hands and the eyes and the feet, from the mind and the emotion and the will. Not only is there forgiveness, there's freedom and life. And one way that we must learn to lean into freedom in life, and this, this comes up regularly in Mark, I'm not gonna devote a sermon to it for a couple of reasons. One, we only have so many in the series. Two, I've talked about it a lot, but it popped up last week in Mark chapter 11, verse 25, when Jesus is talking about prayer, then he talks about forgiveness. One of the primary ways that we learn to interact with the neighbors that God has put into our life is learn to forgive them. People that know that they're forgiven naturally move into the world as forgivers. So there's a person, I imagine, there might be 20, I hope there are not, maybe one, two, or three, that if you close your eyes and picture the person, you want them harmed. Probably you want them to experience the harm that they caused to you. And this is where the love and mercy and grace of Jesus are incredibly powerful but leaning into it will create some disorientation in us and pain. Forgiveness is picturing them and longing for their good. Forgiveness is picturing them and being for them. And if you can't do that, here's what you do. Jesus, sorry, help. Until in your mental picture of them, you're for them. But one of the most profound things that Christians do is forgive. And it will hurt, but here's the thing. It'll hurt this much, or this much, or this much to forgive them, but 200 yards more to only desire their pain. The disintegration of soul that comes through a lack of forgiveness is why Jesus speaks so hard, is one of the two reasons Jesus speaks so harshly and clearly about the essential fact that Christians forgive the neighbors they're in relationship, or the neighbors in their life. Because the pain is, how do I say exponentially, exponentially? Does that work mathematically? Sure, okay. The pain is exponentially, exponentially worse to not forgive. That does not mean that everything's fine. That does not mean call them. Listen very carefully. Don't call them until you've talked to someone and said, I've forgiven them. Do you think I should call them? And this is a trusted friend, not the one that's going to react right when you call them, but the one that will think about it. Okay, so the person that you're picturing, perhaps you've forgiven them, or perhaps you're planning sometimes that Jesus, sorry, help, until you can be for them in your mind. Don't then call them. Call someone else and talk with them about it. Jesus' followers guard their hearts as they love God and their neighbors. And as we're following him, we're drawn into this radical rescue mission. We're not drawn into a little bit of religion into our life. We're not drawn into a civic Jesus that's going to set free the country there. He heals the two crises, our perception of God and of our own self. He atones for us and then he gives us new life. And then every command 
in this case, guard your heart, is a description of abundant life. Perhaps I want to wave my magic wand twice. First is to believe that there's actually freedom. The other one is, every time we see a command in Scripture, we understand that this is the abundant life that flows out of the promises of God. Christians learn to surrender to Christ. They learn to pray to him and then guard their hearts as they love God and neighbor. Earlier this week, I um, did a video and I, conc- I concluded that video with um, the first question in the Heidelberg Catechism. I don't know how familiar you are with catechisms or where you even know that word, but they are delightful Um, In many ways, they're the skeleton of the body, which is the church in terms of theology. Maybe not pretty to look at, but without them, we would just fall, right? The Heidelberg Catechism, which is a terrific description of God and his character, this is the first question in it. I'm going to read it as an encouragement to us as we guard our hearts in our love for God and neighbor this week. Again, this is the Heidelberg Catechism question one. What is your only comfort in life and death? That I am not my own, but belong body, but belong with body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from all the power of the devil. He also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. Therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for him. Would you pray with me? Father, through your strength and kindness, preserve and enliven us today, this afternoon, and this week. Jesus, call to mind your grace and your gospel and that they reconcile us to you through your atonement and resurrection that we will one day receive. Holy Spirit, work heartily in us as we love you and the neighbors you've put into our lives. We know that you are good, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Help us to enjoy and to celebrate, to lean into and rely on your goodness. Amen.